Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. To help build morale around the country and within our armed forces, long before there was a true professional football league, there was war football. And because of its success, the style of play, the headlines, the fans, and the stands, there were many who saw it as a sign that professional football could make it. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we take a look back at the game, World War I style, war football. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello, and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 93, War Football. So glad you could join today and listen to this most interesting topic. So, what was war football? When the U.S. entered World War I, many of the colleges and universities were unable to field a team. The landscape had changed. Schools were ravaged by men who withdrew to go fight for their country and defend the U.S. The college game had to take a back seat. And for those schools that were still able to field a team they also needed to find opponents. The way our armed forces operated and trained, as you might expect, was much different than it is today. Camps were set up all over the country, in almost every state, from coast to coast and border to border. Great football players from the past, the young stars of the day, were thrown together and started playing when they weren't training. Then, they started to form teams and play other camps. Before long, records were kept. Heck, schedules were made. Men like Walter Camp reported on these games, ranked teams, and next, there were playoffs and championships. Even the Rose Bowl was contested by two military teams. It was a different time. But it was these games and the quality of play that gave men like George Hallis the hope that a true countrywide professional league could be launched as opposed to smaller circuits that dotted the Midwest, particularly places like Ohio and Indiana and Illinois. In just a moment, Chris Serb, who was with us just a few weeks ago to talk about the Decatur Staley's, well, he'll be joining us again to talk about war football. 
Chris is an encyclopedia when it comes to this topic, and several years ago, go figure, wrote a book called War Football, World War I and the Birth of the NFL. There are so many directions my conversation could have gone with Chris, and we could have spoken for hours. I am quite sure you will thoroughly enjoy what we did talk about, and I encourage everyone who's listening to grab a copy of his book as well, which is available on Amazon. Before we get into today's show, I'd like to remind everyone that you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook, look up Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram, or visit SportsFH.com for more information about the Forgotten Heroes I talk about, my guests, and it's a great way to get in touch with me to suggest future guests, future topics. Make a comment. Let me know. Again, that's SportsFH.com. Another reminder, don't forget to give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating for those of you listening on Apple Podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. Okay, war football. What a weird name for a topic, but I promise it's a good one. And here to talk more about war football is my guest, Chris Sir. Chris, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join us again. Thanks, Warren. It's really good to be here again, and I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, about war football. Yeah, certainly an interesting topic. Um, and I guess uh, the first question I would have for you on this, what stoked your interest in writing about the advent of professional football through the playing of football during World War One. So I was working on. I was a freelance writer. I was a writer at a couple different magazines. Then was a, was a kind of a full time freelance writer on the side of, of of my day job, and was working on an article about George Hallis. Uh, and his time playing for the Great Lakes Naval Training Station. Now, growing up in Chicago and knowing a lot about Hallis, having his autobiography and having read a couple of books about him, I knew that he played for Great Lakes Naval Training Station, which is about uh, 20 miles north of Chicago's northern border, 20 or 30 miles north, uh, and that they had a top flight football team during World War One. Mm-hmm. But I never knew anything else about military football during World War One. You would have thought that Great Lakes was the only team in the country from the, the amount of material that I had. Because they played, they played top colleges. They played Notre Dame. They played University of Illinois. You know, they did play a Marine team in the Rose Bowl. But uh, yeah, so I was writing about uh, George Hallis and playing for Great Lakes and this great season they had, undefeated season. Walter Camp declared them national champions and uh, won the Rose Bowl. George Hallis was Rose Bowl MVP. So while I'm scrolling through all the old microfilm, I did the did my research the old fashioned way. This was, uh, gosh, this was back in 2003 when I was working on this article. So 17 years ago already, 
scrolling through the microfilm, I see these articles on the side. Uh, Camp Grant defeats Camp Dodge, and Fort Harrison has a big game against Camp Zachary Taylor. And I'm like, what are these places? I've never heard of them. <laughs> and so I started to see that this was more than just Great Lakes, clearly more than just Great Lakes. It was, uh, it was a, a national phenomenon, something that was going on all over the country. And then as I read the stories, it piqued my interest a bit. As I read the stories a little bit closer, I would see names. I would see, wait, George Trafton, he's a, he's a pro football hall of famer. Mm. Uh, Omar Bradley, he was a five-star general. Mm. Uh, you would recognize these, uh, you know, college football hall of famers, uh, guys that went on to play in the NFL. So that's really kind of uh, uh, pro football existed at that time, but it was really in its infancy. It wasn't really legitimate. And, and after and the war, very, was, and it was very regionalized as well. Very much so. Very much so. It was in the Midwest, uh, largely and, and largely in Ohio. You know, you had some in Indiana, you had some in Illinois, but really Ohio, a little bit in Michigan, too. Kind of the the uh, industrial cities and, and for the most part, smallish cities, too. You know, Chicago had Chicago had some semi pro teams. Uh, uh, Detroit had a couple of decent semi pro teams, but it was the, the cities like Canton and Akron and Massillon, Ohio, you know, not not small cities by any stretch, but not big cities either. Mm -hmm. That was really the center of pro football before the war. But, uh, but after the war, you had this explosion and it was those same guys that were playing at Fort Harrison, Camp Zachary Taylor, and largely Great Lakes. Great Lakes had a huge influence, not just through George Hallis, but, but many of their other players at Great Lakes that played at Great Lakes uh, really made an imprint on the birth of the NFL. So that's uh, it's something that I had never heard about before, something that really piqued my, piqued my interest. And it kind of sent me down a rabbit hole uh, 15 years or so of, uh, of research and writing and, and kind of putting the story together and, uh, you know, making uh, making some hypotheses and, and being pleasantly surprised when those uh, hypotheses, when the evidence kind of supported what I was uh, what I was looking into. Mm -hmm. Well, your book really dives in deep and it explores some of the great names that played back then and the different teams from the different camps. And it was really interesting how you put that together. Um, how did the advent of the Army playing football, the Navy playing football, the Marines playing football and playing it well contribute to the creation of professional football? So there were a couple of different things in ha that happened, a couple of factors that all came together. It was kind of a perfect storm of things. Um, the first thing, these really were the first true all-star teams that were ever formed. You know, Walter Camp always had a mythical All-America team. You know, those teams never played together. You know, not even like you had uh, much later in the century, you had uh, the college all-star team that would play the professional champions. They would actually get together on the field. These guys never played together. You know, some of them might have played against each other, but some, you know, they might have been in different regions. Uh, so, these were the first true all-star teams ever assembled where you had a guy from Illinois, a guy from Harvard, a guy from Michigan, a guy from Notre Dame, you know, just kind of coming together on the field, bringing their different styles, bringing their different experiences and bringing their darn good football too. these were, you know, it, it was hard to make some of these teams at Great Lakes. I think mm -hmm. at the initial tryouts, they had something like 500 players show up for the initial tryouts. And these were all fairly seasoned guys, guys that had some, some football experience behind that. And the team quickly got whittled down. But um, 
the fact that this, these were all-star teams of really high-quality players, former All-Americans and All-Conference players and, and varsity stars coming together. So that was the first factor. You know, the, the pro football after the war kind of mirrored those teams. Um, the second factor, and this was really important, uh, the public just loved these military teams. You know, the, the pro football that was played before the war, uh, you know, Canton loved their Bulldogs and Massillon loved their Tigers, but it wasn't like you would get uh, play in the, in the uh, New York Times or the Chicago Tribune or the big papers. But there were big stories about these teams. Uh, it, it was really a big phenomenon back in the time. Uh, and they were played in front of sold out crowds and not rinky dink stadiums either. It, they played at, uh, you know, at Wrigley field, which was then known as Cubs park, uh, Abbott's field, polo grounds, Harvard stadium, these, these really big venues and sold them out. Uh, now we don't really know if it was for patriotism's sake or for the high quality football. But I like to believe that a huge part of it was due to the high quality football. And this kind of showed, uh, showed that, that the public would embrace these kinds of all-star teams. Mm-hmm. Um, another big factor, you know, these players, in some cases, they played their last college football game the year before the war, but in some cases they hadn't played in five or 10 or even 15 years. Uh, they realized they still had a lot of football left in them. Why did they have to quit playing football just because they had finished their, uh, at that time, it was usually three seasons of college eligibility in some parts of the country. It was four, but usually three seasons of college eligibility and you're done. So they had already hung up their pads once and now they've had another taste of football. They realized how much they loved it and they were ready to keep playing. So that was a huge factor. Um, another thing, and this was, it's either number one or number one, a, as far as most important, uh, a lot of barriers to professionalism fell because of the war, um, before the war you had, uh, you had in places like Ohio certainly embraced uh, professional football, but you know, in Chicago, in New York, in places like that, people tended to kind of look down at pro football, not only as inferior to the college game, but, uh, kind of associated with, with roughnecks, Mm. with, uh, with, with drinkers, with gamblers, with Sabbath breakers. Um, you know, before the war, uh, there, there's a writer who wrote a really good book about, uh, about, uh, the dawn of professional football. He calls it the the Sunday game. Keith McClellan is the author's name. He noted that only about 20% of pro football players before the war had graduated from college. Mm-hmm. Um, so now these guys, they're college graduates, they're military veterans. Uh, once they emerged after the war and got into pro football, they kind of broke down a lot of the public's uh, suspicion, I guess, of of what professional football was all about, about what professional football players were like. So you had uh, barriers to professionalism that fell uh, specifically because of the war and because of the kind of clean cut military veteran that was getting into pro football now. And then uh, this this is either number one, again, either number one or number one A as far as importance. Uh, you had this amazing networking effect. You know, before the war, uh, if you played football, you knew you knew the guys that you played high school football with, the guys that you played college football with, and that was about it. Uh, but now if you played at Camp Taylor, you might be playing alongside a guy from Harvard, a guy mm-hmm. from Pitt, a guy from Notre Dame, a guy from Illinois. You're all playing together. Uh, maybe you would play against each other. Uh, maybe you would write about each other. Maybe, maybe you had never even heard of this guy, but now you're playing together. You're practicing together. Uh, if you got over to Europe, you're literally going into battle together. Um, so you got to know these guys really, 
really well. And then after the war, you could kind of tap into their networks once you were starting a football team. And George Hallis did that really, really well. Mm -hmm. But a couple of other important figures did that, too. Uh, Guys who truly are sports' forgotten heroes. Uh, Buntal that did that with the Dayton Triangles. There was this guy, uh, Babe Ruetz, who had played at Camp Hancock in Georgia. He uh, founded the Racine Legion, which was uh, a short-lived but an NFL-caliber team. Uh, You had several examples of guys like that who really tapped into these networks that probably would have been much more limited networks if not for their time in playing military football. So you had all these factors coming together and, you know, by themselves, one or two or maybe even three of those factors wouldn't have jumpstarted the NFL the way that they did. But they all came together and it and and then you had some strong personalities involved, too, like George Hallis and Bud Talbot and uh, Charlie Brickley and guys like that. And uh, that really that really kind of made this whole thing happen. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to touch upon some of the individual names um, that made war football or wartime football what it really became and what it was. But the first name I want to bring up is a name you already mentioned him, and he didn't play, and that is Walter Camp. Right. One of the observations you made in your book was how hypocritical camp was when it came to professional football. He actually didn't like the idea of a professional game, yet he earned a good portion of his living from covering football. So two questions here. Give us a quick primer on who Walter Camp was and what made him so important when it came to football? And two, why was he so against the professional game? That's, uh, those are, those are two very good questions. So, (laughs) so for a, a quick primer on Walter Camp. So to a lot of the public at the time that that the U.S. got involved in World War One, uh, Walter Camp was American football. So Amer- American football had only been around. It wasn't even 50 years old once uh, once we got into World War One. The first game was played uh, in 1869. And uh, Walter Camp was around for most of football's existence at that point. He started playing at Yale in 1876. Uh, and he was he played uh, eligibility rules were a lot looser back then. So he played uh, I think he played six full seasons and part of a seventh season, uh, a little bit, a uh, little bit uh, sketchy in today in terms of today, but uh, but perfectly acceptable back then when they were still kind of figuring out and defining uh, what eligibility was and who should be allowed to play. But uh, uh, when he was uh, a sophomore at Yale, he got onto football's rules committee, which helped determine what exactly the rules of this game were going to be. So at first, when uh, Walter Camp started playing, there were maybe a dozen colleges playing it. Uh, uh, the, the traditional Ivy League schools were playing football, a couple of other colleges, and they would meet every year. Each school would send a representative. They would meet every year and, and kind of determine the ground rules for the game. And Walter Camp really pushed rules that would give American football an identity that was different than European rugby or or English rugby, which really was its origins uh, Mm -hmm. were in English rugby. So Walter Camp 
served on these rules committees and really steered it towards the game that we know today. He was the guy that came up with the idea of a scrimmage instead of a scrum for the ball after every play. He was the guy that came up with the idea of needing a certain amount of plays and a certain amount of yardage to get a first down. And it kind of changed over the years, but yeah, it's four, four downs for four downs to gain 10 yards. Uh, now, uh, at, at one point it was three downs to gain five yards, but, uh, that was Walter camp's idea, uh, limiting teams to 11 players aside. There were, varying numbers during football's early years. Uh, I think 15 was kind of standard when camp was playing, but it was his brainchild to make it 11 players per side. Uh, A lot of the, a lot of the, uh, innovations of the early game, uh, leading all the way up to the forward pass, which Walter Camp was against. Actually, Walter Camp wasn't a big fan of uh, the forward pass, but for some uh, some very practical reasons, uh, pre- actually, President Teddy Roosevelt kind of kind of forced it upon uh, Walter Camp and the the rules committee that they needed to do something that would make the game a little bit safer. So the forward pass uh, kind of opened up the game and kind of prevented some of the head and neck injuries that were really prevalent mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in the game because it was a pretty brutal, violent game at the time, but. Sure. Uh, so he was, yeah, he was uh, really important as a rule maker, but he was also just critically important as a, a, a kind of an apostle and a, a, a proselytizer, I guess, of, of, uh, of football's virtues and kind of, kind of poetically on, on that high level, but also on the basic level, he watched a ton of football, got, updates from a lot of different people. He had scouts all around the country telling him who the best football players were, and he would write about the game and also uh, invented, uh, it was 1889, so he had been done playing for a few years, but he uh, came up with the concept of the All-America team. Now, there's there's actually some dispute whether that was Walter Camp's idea. Another guy, uh, Park Davis, may have come up with it. I think there's someone else. You know, There's a bit of dispute among historians over whose idea it was, but certainly it's most closely tied to Walter Camp's name. So Walter Camp just wrote and, and as you said, it's kind of hypocritical because he was against professionalism. He was against making money off of sports, but he made, you know, tens of thousands of dollars back when tens <laughs> yeah. of thousands of dollars was was quite a bit of money. You know, it would be in the millions of dollars today uh, from writing articles, selling books uh, and kind of, you know, he uh he he was a name that people sought out as a football expert, and he would gladly oblige them by providing providing bylined articles and writing about the game, writing about specific players, covering certain games, and uh, so he was uh, he was instrumental in getting football uh, football to where it was at the the dawn of World War One, which is a, a pretty darn popular game. It wasn't quite as popular as professional baseball, but it was really close. It was getting there at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Walter Camp at the time at the time that uh, the U.S. got involved in World War One. It looked like American football might die for the at least for the duration of the war. A lot of colleges were were uh, suspending operations, suspending fo- suspending their football teams. Uh, a lot of a lot of the good players enlisted, and you had kind of kind of untested, inexperienced players and and freshmen. A lot of a lot of teams uh, a lot of teams uh, got rid of the uh, allowed freshman eligibility during World War One. Uh, but it was going to be an inferior brand of football to what you had seen just before the war. But, uh, you know, some writers early on in the war were lamenting, oh, we're not going to have great football this year. College football is going to stink. You know, will the champion even really be a champion? Uh, Where a lot of people saw gloom and doom, Walter Camp really saw an opportunity. uh, And not not at the college level, but with these war football teams. So that was something that Walter Camp pushed. He was instrumental in setting up 
he 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 had an appointment as uh, all the t- all the while while he was writing and and proselytizing about football, he had a an appointment, a civilian appointment, but as athletic director for the U.S. Navy. Mm. Uh, so he s- installed football in the naval stations as a training tool for just common soldiers. Uh, common sailors, I'm sorry, and then uh, expanded this to the army. Uh, there was a guy, Joseph Raycroft, was was Camp's uh, contemporary with the army, so he kind of pushed this idea on Raycroft, and Raycroft said, uh, "Let's give it a try." So, you know, if, if you or I had been drafted, uh, we showed up at a barracks. Maybe we had heard about this game, maybe not. Maybe we had played high school football, maybe not. But we're just average Joes, and the uh, the training camps, the Navy bases, the army camps would have would have each barracks each regiment would get together a football team so you and i hey you, you look like you're about six foot tall about 180 pounds i think you'd be a good left tackle so uh so this was used as a tool to physically harden the young recruits so that was walter camp's first push was to kind of expand and broaden uh, the use of football as a training tool and as a tool for improving morale, keeping soldiers and sailors occupied mm-hmm. and things like that. So mm-hmm. so that was kind of part A of war football. But part B was he saw the opportunity. You know, you had these these training camps. They were, you know, little cities that sprung up in the middle of nowhere, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 soldiers or sailors or Marines. And when you had this little city built, you had all these all these people there. A couple of hundred of them had played college football. Maybe you know four or five had been all Americans. These were these were damn good players. So Walter Camp was the first to really realize that you know not just regimental football or intramural football uh, as as a training tool, but that varsity level football played by these training camps could be. For one thing, a good recreational tool for the soldiers and sailors, they go watch the games on Saturdays. But for another thing, a good way to spread the word about the U.S. military, to raise money for the war effort Mm -hmm. by playing, Mm -hmm. you know, playing each other and playing the top colleges in front of these packed crowds. So Walter Camp really, you know, where others saw doom and gloom, Walter Camp saw an opportunity. He saw that football might, that the war might be the greatest thing that ever happened to football. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your book, War Football... World War One and the birth of the NFL, you put it together in a very interesting way. Like I said earlier, you touched upon different teams and different people. Um, and we're going to touch upon some of them as well for no other reason than I just want to talk a little more about some of the people and some of the teams that you discuss we can't touch upon all of them. We'd be here for quite some time. <laughs> right. But the, the one I want to start off with, and it's because of, you know, military history and names or whatever, Bertie Gardner, Camp Custer, and the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. Mm-hmm. Who was Bertie Gardner? And tell us about Camp Custer and its team. Okay. So Bertie Gardner was, uh, so at the time of World War I, Bertie Gardner was aging, but he still had a lot of good football in him. He was, I think, he might have been 34 during the season that he played for Camp Custer. But So he was an aging veteran, but this was really his last hurrah when he played for Camp Custer. So uh, Camp Custer was in Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, 
Bertie was uh, Bertie himself had played at Carlisle Indian School uh, about a decade before. He hadn't been an All-American, but he had been on some really good Carlisle teams. I think his last year he played with Jim Thorpe, uh, but he uh, th- these were the Carlisle teams that would go in and upset uh, University of Pennsylvania mm-hmm. back when they were a powerhouse or University of Chicago. I don't remember exactly who Gardner's teams beat, but uh, but they really they really wowed them. And and even when they didn't beat uh, you know a Harvard, which again was a national power at the time, you know they, if, if if they lost by one or two points, you know it was, if there was a point spread, if the point spread had existed back then, it would have favored Harvard by you know twenty at the time. So so they were. So at Carlisle, he was a really good player. He played end and uh, he was part of one of the first effective forward passing attacks. You know, the forward pass was legalized in college football in 1906. And I think 1907 might have been his last his last year of uh, of college football. So during those uh, during those two seasons, Carlisle really just used it as an effective weapon to really shock and surprise and and uh, and trick some of these some of these the powerhouse teams that were really run, 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 and then run a little bit more, maybe try one or two passes during the game just to, just to keep people on their toes, but really a run heavy diet. You know, are you, are you going left? Are you going right? Or are you going up the middle? Were kind of the choices. Uh, so, uh, so Pop Warner was a really innovative coach and Bertie Garter was a really effective player for Pop Warner. Mm-hmm. So uh, he had, uh, after after uh, after graduating Carlisle, he'd gone to law school. He had done some coaching. He had he had kind of done the circuit. He'd played a little bit of the semi-pro football. But uh, once he landed at Camp Custer, uh, he landed there as an officer. I believe he was a captain at Camp Custer, and he was also captain uh, and coach of the football team. So he uh, Camp Custer was a very good football team and Gardner was their best player, kind of their driving force. They had a couple of guys who had played at Michigan state. Uh, Jerry DePrado was one of them. Blake Miller was another one of them. They were both uh, Michigan state at the time. Wasn't, wasn't in the big 10, but they were, they were all Western type of type of football players. And then they both got kicked out of school for uh, playing pro football under assumed names, but they were, they were kind of a powerhouse school. They swept through their regular season. Uh, One game that's really interesting that Bertie, uh, had a big impact on. They played against uh, the Detroit Heralds, which was a really good semi-pro football team uh, at the time. And uh, one of Gardner's players, uh, Jerry DePrado, one of the Michigan State guys uh, th- that I mentioned, uh, he uh, was the recipient of a cheap shot and he got knocked out of the game. So uh, Bertie warned the referee, said, Mr. Referee, we're not going to stand for that. So he goes into the huddle and Bertie says, Bertie, who normally played on, said, move me to fullback because he saw that the other guy would be lined up right right opposite him. So so Bertie, he doesn't take the ball. He just plows right into the guy, throws a vicious block and knocks him out of the game. So then he then he uh, he, he got his revenge and then he said, OK, now we can go back to playing football. But uh, yeah, so Camp Custer was uh, was undefeated all season uh, until they lost. Uh, they lost their final game, which is uh, kind of a hastily arranged Midwest Army championship uh, Camp Cramp Camp Grant of Rockford, Illinois was uh, was their opponent. But uh, Birdie himself almost willed his team to victory. They're down. Mm. Uh, they're losing fourteen nothing in the fourth quarter. Uh, Birdie blocked a blocked a field goal right into one of his teammates' arms. The teammate returned it all the way down to the fifteen line, and they punched it in a couple of plays later. Uh, then on the next series, uh, Birdie ripped the ball out of a Camp Grant ball carrier's hands, uh, single handedly returned it uh, almost sixty yards for a touchdown. So a couple of, a couple of brilliant plays, but uh, but a missed extra point cost them 
cost them the win. They wound up losing by one point, but uh, not for any lack of effort on Birdie's part. So kind of uh, uh, he only played a couple of games. Again, he was aging. He only played uh, a couple of games in the early NFL, but definitely, uh, definitely one of the really uh, one of the big stars of the 1917 season during war football. Mm -hmm. Another name you mentioned was Bud Talbot. Mm-hmm. How important was he in the eventual formation of professional football? And by that, I mean, wasn't it Talbot and his Camp Sherman team that toured through Ohio to raise money for the 83rd Division Welfare Fund? And they met with a lot of success. A lot of people came out to... to, to you know, to buy tickets to to help them raise money for for the army. Um, it, so I would have to think that that had to be an eye opener for a lot of people saying, wow, people will actually come and pay money for good football. I think it definitely was. It, it definitely was. Now, now Talbot already had a little bit of experience in pro football, or I guess I guess it would be semi pro football at the time. Uh, Talbot had played at Yale. He had been an All-American at Yale. And then he uh, moved back. He was from Dayton. He moved back and got into business. But uh, he dabbled in coaching, coached this uh, coached this kind of ragtag semi-pro team, the Dayton Triangles, uh, and then uh, joined the Army, enlisted in the Army once uh, once uh, America got into World War One. So he volunteered to be the coach of the Camp Sherman team. And when he saw who he had at practice, he had these guys that were uh, he had a couple of former All-Americans. He also had these guys that had played at small college, smaller colleges in Ohio who were really, really good players that, you know, would have been big names if they had gone to an Ohio State or, or a Michigan or a Harvard or places like that. But they had gone to gone to kind of the sm- smaller schools like Marietta and places like that, uh, College of Wooster, maybe some some places that didn't quite didn't quite get the national press. But these were. These were really good football players. So when Talbot saw the kind of team that he had, he uh, it's exactly as you said, he set up a barnstorming tour. We're going to go through Ohio and we're going to play colleges, other military teams, et cetera. And we're going to play at big venues. You know, we're not going to put it's not just going to be playing at camp in front of the soldiers, although the soldiers are certainly welcome. But we're going to go play at Cincinnati Reds Field, Redland Field. Uh, we're going to go play in Cleveland at Cleveland's League Park. We're going to go uh, we're going to go to these these big venues and we're going to sell them out. And that's exactly what they did. So uh, they did extremely well. They raised the equivalent of what would be three million dollars in today's dollars and they did so without the benefit of luxury boxes you know with the, you know a big stadium at the time might have been 20,000 seats or 15,000 seats so uh if if they were playing in today's stadiums they would have certainly done even better than that and and mm. 3 million dollars or the equivalent of 3 million dollars is pretty darn impressive uh so he took that experience personally other other people saw that and said hmm there might be a lucrative market in pro football uh, Bud Talbot himself took that experience to heart too. When after the war, he went back to Dayton, went back to went back to uh, to doing his business work, but also 
continued to dabble with coaching for the Dayton Triangles, but he bumped up the level of player, the level of competition, and uh, and uh, kind of took the Dayton Triangles to new heights. They wound up being one of the uh, inaugural entries into the NFL. In fact, uh, the Triangles played in the first game in NFL history, which uh, which uh, they beat the uh, the Columbus Panhandles fourteen to nothing. That was uh, that was exactly a hundred years ago here, about a month ago. But uh, he he took a couple of players from camp Sherman. Uh, uh, Naki Ruff was one of the guys. I just love that name. Naki, uh, <laughs> tiny Turner, you know, tiny, of course, weighed about 230 pounds. And uh, so he had, uh, he had three former camp Sherman players, but he had, I, I think it was 11 uh, war football veterans in total. So he really bumped it up from just being a factory town team to being a high level professional team. Uh, so Bud Tablet was really important in getting uh, getting the NFL getting the NFL started uh, over those first ten years. He only coached the Triangles for uh, two years, and he was quite good. He uh, they uh, they were definitely over five hundred in those years. They were uh, they were not up there with the the Canton Bulldogs, Akron Pros, and Decatur Staley's, but they were just like that kind of that next tier below them. But uh, Tablet got out of coaching, got into business full time, uh, rejoined the military, and and was uh, for World War II and was ultimately promoted to general. So kind of an example of uh, one of those guys who, you know, was a, was a damn good football player, but football wasn't, wasn't, the, wasn't the end game for him. He had, uh, he had much higher heights, but a really important figure, uh, not only in war football, but in getting the NFL started. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to Walter Camp for a moment. He's watching all of this, isn't he? And despite his opposition to professional football, he's got to be sent. He's He's got to be thinking there's something here. Absolutely. Absolutely. He, uh, Walter Camp was, uh, he could kind of get flowery when he was talking about football's promise and, and what you, what you could expect from football. And it seems like uh, I read many of his old guidebooks, you know, many of his, uh, uh, this is what we expect in the 1905 season and 1908 season. I read a lot of those as research and it seems mm-hmm. like every season was going to be the greatest season ever. But, uh, uh, 1917, uh, he was very optimistic about what, what mil- what military football might do for the sport of football and and kind of said this might be the greatest season ever now some of the camps were really good and some weren't so good because of lack of teamwork lack mm-hmm. of practice time for some other reasons so in 1917 you could probably say that college football and military football were maybe on an equal footing maybe even maybe college football was even just a little bit better than military football because a lot of guys who volunteered uh, volunteered to enlist uh, were told hold on a second we haven't finished building the camps we don't quite have the capacity uh, just wait we'll call you in February or March or so so they got to go back to their college and play. But uh, in 1918, uh, his dreams were fully realized. War football, military football was head and shoulders above uh, the college game in the 1918 season. All of the best players were at these Army, Navy, and Marine training camps, with the exception of those that had played in 1917 and then were already off uh, in Europe doing the fighting. But uh, the highest class football was played in 1918. And you you just have to think that Walter Camp was going through the roof, seeing, wow, I created this, Mm. and uh, and (laughs) this is, or I had a large part in creating this anyway, and this is really something special. So he he, uh, he definitely could smile on his handiwork after uh, after seeing what uh, what it had become. Mm-hmm. So this brand of football, this military game, 
It's got to be capturing the fancy of the American public at this point as well. Let's examine a few things here. How were the colleges affected by this? After all, their stars were going on to the armed forces. The colleges had to have been affected. Absolutely, absolutely. They, uh, a lot of the, uh, as, as I said, uh, some of the schools, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, most notably, which were powerhouses back then, uh, dropped football for the duration of the war. Um, Harvard did play with an informal, uncoached team during the war, but uh, you know, the, a lot of the, a lot of the big powerhouse schools either dropped football or scaled football back. Uh, it kind of, uh, if the really good players were off in the military. Uh, they were there and you still did have a football team. The really good players places were filled by, you know, guys that might've been fourth string or, or, you know, some, some kind of untested freshman. Uh, so the college brand of football was suffering, but military football was able to fill the gap in these, you know, yeah, you, you could basically see Ohio state play. You would just have to go to uh, five different, five different <laughs> military camps to see the, the, the camp in action. And you could read about their exploits in the papers too. You know, the, the newspapers of the day, they were, fortunately they did capture uh, a wonderful record of what went on in the football back then. They, uh, they really don't write them like they used to. They really captured who was doing what, how they were doing and what the atmosphere was like. So that was really neat to see. And, you know, uh, you know that's really a really interesting point you bring up there. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've got to. It's my show. Um, sure. <laughs> newspaper coverage. I think part of the reason that professional football did not catch on at this point or up to this point is because it didn't get a whole lot of coverage in the newspapers. College football did, but you might see a line or two, maybe a paragraph at most, to recap a quote-unquote professional football game while the colleges were still getting some really good coverage. But with the advent of war football, coverage became bigger. There was more write-ups about the game how did how did what was going on with newspaper coverage also affect the advent of professional football yeah so i i, I think you i think you kind of captured it by saying you know the now again in the cities like canton or decatur or places like that they wrote about their pro football teams and wrote wrote about them really well but those stories just weren't picked up by the wire services but if you had a powerhouse team like a Great Lakes or a Camp Sherman or uh, out west, you had the Mare Island Marines, uh, you had Kelly Field down in Texas, uh, some real powerhouse teams, these stories were getting picked up by the press wire. So I'm in, uh, let's say I'm in North Dakota, I'm reading about this team in Georgia that's uh, that, that's really something. And these these names that maybe I had never heard about in North Dakota because, you know, they played at schools that just didn't get into the press wires. Uh, That word got out to me. So it definitely spread word about these players, these teams all around the country and kind of expanded the reputations of a lot of these players. Again, like one of those barriers to professionalism that I talked about before. Um, Wait a second. This guy's okay. I remember he played for he played for Camp Greenleaf. He played for Great Lakes. He played for he played for the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Uh, I, I read about that somewhere. Okay, I'll, I'll 
I'll, uh, I won't look down my nose at him for playing pro football anymore. It kind of, uh, it kind of it, def- it definitely captured the public's fancy, and then uh, and then made those names a little bit more recognizable by the time they they got out of the armed services and got into professional football. Mm-hmm. Well, before I interrupted you, we were talking about how the colleges were affected, and one of the cool things I think was that you had young college stars, guys who left their schools to join the armed forces, to fight for their country. They end up playing football for whichever camp they're in. There are old college stars there too, guys who had played the college game, but their days of playing college ball were long gone. How did young and old mix? It seems like it took a little while for them to gel on the field, but once they gelled, they really figured things out well. Um, not unlike, you know, not unlike a rookie finding his place on a team today. He might have all the physical tools in the world, but how do we fit him into this lineup? You know, we're these these uh, this whole defense has been playing together. We've got this superstar linebacker, but how does he fit in with what we've been doing? So it might take a couple of couple of games to figure that out. But uh, uh, one thing that you saw one of the one of the one thing that you saw in war football in 1917, uh, it took a lot longer for teams to gel than in 1918. In 1918, for one thing, you know, yes, they you know they called open tryouts maybe in maybe in mid to late August, but these guys had been knowing each other for a couple of months. In 1917, they've literally just arrived. Mm-hmm. The final nails were still being put in the barracks in late August. And then, uh, and then these guys are showing up in September and then by September 15th, Oh yeah, let's, let's have a football team. Walter camp is, uh, is pushing football. So, uh, so the brand of football and the way that the players melded in 1917, wasn't quite as good as in 1918 in 1918. They, had already been around each other. They had been training together. They had been uh, they had been recreationalizing together. Uh, many of them had played baseball for their baseball their camp's baseball teams, so they knew each other personally. So even even if you were five or eight or ten years older than this, you know this whippersnapper, you knew them. You were starting to learn their reputation. You were starting to starting to get along on a personal level, and that just made it easier on the field of play. I think. Mm-hmm. How good was the quality of play? I mean, you said before there were some camps, some teams that, you know, they 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 didn't perform all that well. But then there were some that really did. I mean, you even had um, some of these great military teams beat superior college teams like Pitt, coached by Pop Warner. Um you know, so there had to have been some teams that were just totally outstanding. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could rattle off a handful uh, by name. We'll get to that. Uh, don't let me forget about that, that Pitt and Pop Warner team and uh, playing the Cleveland Naval Reserves. That was that was one of the best games of war football. But uh, but certainly George Hallis's Great Lakes team was outstanding. It was probably the best team during the war football era. Uh they had uh, they they went seven uh, they won seven they lost none uh, they did tie two games during the year 
one uh, one against uh, Notre Dame, which featured a guy named George Gipp, was their uh, star halfback <laughs> who scored <laughs> scored Notre Dame's only touchdown. So so there was a, it was a seven seven tie, and then uh, the other tie was against Northwestern, my alma mater actually. But uh, Northwestern was only okay that year, but uh, they played on a really muddy field. That kind of you know Great Lakes missed a bunch of a bunch of field goal attempts in that game, so probably kind of a kind of an anomaly. But uh, yeah, they went undefeated. They won the Rose Bowl. Uh, they, they didn't have a ton of all Americans. They did have a couple of second and, and third team all Americans and whatnot, but they had a lot of like all conference caliber players. They were a very deep team. Uh, and then George Hallis, uh, George Hallis was on the team. And I know this is sports is forgotten heroes and Hallis certainly isn't forgotten, no. but, uh, but this aspect of his career really is. And honestly, war football and his season at Great Lakes might be the most important thing because Hallis was really a pretty average college player. Mm-hmm. It, it took war football to turn him into a star. He was, uh, he was second team all service. Walter Camp named a, uh, named an all service team instead of an all American team for the, uh, the military players. He made, uh, but Hallis made second team all service. He was Rose Bowl MVP. He scored a touchdown. He made a key interception late in the game. Uh, so, uh, uh, war football really, yeah, he, he probably would have tried to play pro football after the war, but uh, it, it was through war football that he really was able to emerge not only as a star, but again, as uh, as we talked about, uh, develop those networks and tap into those networks that helped him build a team after the war. So uh, so Great Lakes was certainly the best, but uh, uh, the Mare Island Marines uh, mm-hmm. uh, were very good for, for two seasons, and they were totally different teams. Uh, the 1917 team, which uh, won the 1918 Rose Bowl, was dominated by old Oregon players. Uh, the 1918 team, which lost to Great Lakes in the 1919 Rose Bowl, but they had gone undefeated and and put up some really huge scores before that, too. Uh, they were dominated by uh, by Washington State players. Uh, but they were a very good team. Um, uh, the Cleveland Naval Reserves, we'll touch upon them in a minute. Uh, Kelly Field, uh, which I didn't write about. Uh, I, I only touched upon them in war football because they didn't have as much influence on, on the professional game. But they they were undefeated down in Texas. Uh, Camp Greenleaf in Georgia, they were undefeated, and they had a uh, they had a great uh, a, a great player who got his first taste of coaching. Uh, Jack Sutherland, who wound up going on to be a college Hall of Fame coach mm-hmm. and coaching in the pros as well. Uh, over in Europe, you had this AEF tournament. Uh, the 89th Division was uh, the best team over there. They went undefeated and uh, looked really good doing so. So so you had some really, really good teams that a lot of them are forgotten, but we really should be remembering them. You know, if you're remembering uh, Newt Rockney's Notre Dame teams of the 1920s, you know, those Decorate Lakes team could have, uh, yeah, well, they did play Newt Rockney's. Uh, that was Newt Rockney's first team in 1918 that they played. Uh, but that Decorate Lakes team was just as good as as Rockney's best team, you know, mm. you, you, uh, you had some, some really high quality, high caliber football that really was forgotten solely because, you know, a lot of these camps demobilized, uh, military football with, uh, with the exception of the Quantico Marines, uh, military football really didn't, uh, was downplayed. Yeah. You, you might, you might have a camp team, but they were, uh, they didn't have the all Americans. They didn't have the all conference players they would maybe play another military camp but they weren't playing in front of the packed crowds and you know with the kind of college atmosphere that you had during world war one so so it's kind of a misfortune uh, of history that uh, that it's long been forgotten but then again it was an opportunity for me that i was able to tell that story <laughs> you know chris i would be remiss especially in today's environment if i didn't ask about 1918 
the pandemic. Mm -hmm. How did the Spanish flu affect football? And if I remember correctly, you actually write about a theory on how it actually spread. So, yeah, these uh, there uh, and this isn't my research, of course, this is uh, this is uh, research that's been put together by some pretty reputable historians that I just kind of uh, kind of uh, borrowed and cited and stuff in my book. But uh, it's largely believed to have started at Camp Funston in Kansas at a military camp. Not necessarily started, but that's largely uh, believed to the primary means of the influenza spreading from two troop transfers. You'd go from Camp Funston to, you know, some camp in Georgia and then maybe to a camp in Maryland and then an uh, embarkation port up in New Jersey and then you'd sail across the Atlantic. So you're coming into contact with people and kind of spreading this. So uh, that, uh, you know, the frequent troop movements, uh, the fact that the troops were crowded into, into these tight barracks and, you know, with that, with not much circulation, you know, uh, yeah, a kind of a recipe for disaster things we're being warned about, uh, these days with the, with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, those situations were, uh, ripe at the military camps back in 1918, kind of ripe for, for spreading the flu. And a lot of soldiers and, and, and sailors and Marines did die. You know, it was, uh, it disproportionately, especially compared to COVID, uh, uh, disproportionately affected young people, you know, people in the prime of their lives. But, uh, it did have a huge effect on football because the, the worst wave of the, of the, 1918 influenza pandemic came right during that fall of 1918, mm -hmm. right when football season was starting up. So uh, some teams got in uh, an early game in uh, in late September or early October, and then had to had to shut down operations for a couple of weeks. Uh, it it kind of hit different areas of the country at different rates. So um, in some parts of the country, it was early in the season. Some parts, it was the middle of the season. Some parts, it was, it was late in the season, but it was really affected. You had just widespread cancellations of games. You know, Great Lakes was supposed to play uh, University of Pittsburgh, which was, uh, which was the, uh, the college champion in 1918. They were supposed to play this would have been one heck of a game, you know, mm. the best team in military football against the best team in college football. So Great Lakes uh, went so far as to get on the train, got all the way to Pittsburgh, and then the health authorities shut the game down and sent Great Lakes turning turning right back around and sent them right back to Chicago. But uh, And in some cases, you had... Uh, you had restricted uh, audiences. You might have only they might have only allowed a thousand, you know, people at most in a, in, a, in stadiums that, that could see ten thousand, kind of like some of the things you might see in college football today with COVID. And uh, in some cases, which you're seeing in the Big Ten right now, uh, games were played in front of in front of uh, barred doors, you know, mm -hmm. empty stadiums, only only the players. So. Uh, it, uh, it, it kind of imperiled that 1918 season. And, you know, if, if a typical football season might've been, uh, might've been nine games back then, a lot of teams only got to play five or four or maybe six games. Uh, so they didn't get the full season in, uh, you know, a handful of teams did get the full season in, but, uh, yeah, the pandemic really threatened football, but once it had passed in certain areas, uh, you know, some of this. Some of the areas, some of the regions expanded the season a couple of extra weeks. And, and uh, you did have some really high quality football finally towards the end of that season. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you spoke about so many of the best war football teams. And now it's time to talk about a couple, three or four of them. And you said, don't let me forget to talk <laughs> about Pitt and Pop Warner. So let's start there. 
Tell us about um, Pitt and their games against some of, you know, these great military teams. Right, right. So Pop Warner had been, uh, you know, his name is synonymous with youth football, which is uh, kind of funny because he's uh, he, he never coached youth football. Right. He was uh, by by all accounts, he was kind of a profane guy. He was uh, he was a chain smoker. He you know he cussed a lot. Uh, kind of a kind of a tough, gruff guy. But he uh, but he's associated with youth football because he was very kind to a youth group that uh, they asked him to speak at a dinner, and he was uh, he, they asked a bunch of coaches to uh, to come speak, and uh, he was the only one that showed up and told stories and was encouraging to the kids so even though he never coached the you know the pop warner level kids that's that's how it got their name so his, right. his name is definitely remembered today but uh but back in the day uh pop was one of the best known college football coaches he had coached uh he had coached jim thorpe at carlisle and uh coached them into a national powerhouse and then after he left carlisle he went to university of pittsburgh and turned them into a national powerhouse they had been undefeated for several seasons leading into leading into world war one and uh kind of early on i think uh i i have this quote in the book uh warner said uh kind of said, said something super patriotic he said i don't give a rap if we win a football game this year you know kind of, kind of implying that all our all our efforts going to go to the war effort uh, he clearly didn't mean that that was in 1917 and he uh <laughs> pop and picked uh well, uh, for one thing, he got kind of lucky in 1917 because so, many of his best players were in dental school. So they registered for the draft. They, you know, some, in, in some cases they volunteered for service. And the army said, well, actually, we could use these guys as dentists, not just as, you know, not just as infantrymen. So let them finish out their their uh, dental school there. So Pop had a pretty decent, they called them the fighting dentists in 1917. So, um, so some of the dentists, Jack Sutherland, who we had already talked about, who uh, coached at Camp Greenleaf was one of those fighting dentists, but, uh, but Jack Sutherland and a couple of other really good players had graduated, but they did have some of their core guys back, some all American college football hall of fame caliber guys. And uh, they were widely acknowledged as the college national champions that year. They beat uh, Georgia tech who had won the pre, Previous year's college national championship, they they beat them. Didn't just beat them; they pummeled them, something like thirty-two to nothing. So, uh, so Pitt was a really good, really high-quality football team in 1918. One of the one of the colleges that really excelled despite the uh, despite the war, the, uh, the influence of the war, and despite the pandemic. So, but Cleveland Navy, Cleveland Navy was a pretty darn good team too. Their strength really was in their backfield. They had a guy named. Uh, Moon Dussault, who had played at Auburn, uh, but an, uh, and had been really good, kind of an all Southern caliber football player, uh, wasn't wasn't an All American, but mostly because of regional bias, he probably was uh, good enough to be an All American. But the real gem of the team was uh, Pete Stinchcomb, who had been at Ohio mm-hmm. State. Uh, mm-hmm. He was uh, he had been a sophomore at Ohio State in 1917 when they won the Big Ten for the first time, and then uh, now he's in, he's enlisted in the Navy and he's playing at Cle- for the Cleveland Naval Reserves in 1918. Uh, after the war, he would be an All American. He would lead Ohio State to its it's uh, it's first Rose Bowl. But uh, before the war, uh, Pete had kind of been in the shadow of an even better player at Ohio State, a guy named Chick Harley, who, uh, by the way, also played war football. He played for uh, he played for an uh, air base down in Florida. But uh, now at Cleveland, uh, Pete kind of had the, the chance to be the man. He kind of had the chance to stand out. So this uh, midway through the season, this led to a big blunder. Uh Cleveland was playing another really good team, the Chicago Naval Reserves, which uh, 
uh, which trained at Navy Pier here in Chicago, played their games at Wrigley Field. Uh, Stinchcomb tried to trick the Chicago defense. Uh, they're down 6 nothing. They're driving the ball. He's decided that we're, we're on the two-yard line. Uh, they're expecting a run. I think I'm going to throw a pass. Well, he threw the pass incomplete into the end zone. Under the rules of the day, that's a touchback. Uh, it's uh, it's Chicago Naval Reserve's ball. Game over, basically. So Pete's blunder cost them the game. Oh but, boy! Uh, against Pitt, Pete kind of had a chance to redeem himself. Uh, he played extremely well in the Cleveland versus Pitt game. Uh, it was a really hard fought game. Pitt kind of had the advantage for most of the game, but they were playing their third game in seven days, and they kind of wore down towards the end of the game. Uh, so. Late in the fourth quarter or midway through the fourth quarter, I forget which it was, but uh, Pitt's just starting to wear down, starting to get exhausted. Pete calls a trick play. It's what we would call a flea flicker today. So Mundu Sot, uh, uh, Pete gets the Pete gets the snap from the from the center, pitches it to Mundu Sot, and then circles around right end, catches the ball in stride for a 35 yard touchdown, and uh, Cleveland Naval Reserves winds up beating Pitt, the college champion, 10 to nine in uh, a huge upset and wow. kind of the game. Yeah, definitely the game that sticks out is the one that kind of, even though it was close, this this tells the world that uh, that war football, military football, is superior to the college game, at least for that 1918 season. So uh, Pop Warner didn't take too kindly to it, by the way. He, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. he insisted that he had been cheated. He uh, refused to acknowledge this game in, in Pitt's permanent record uh, for the rest of his life and for decades after. It's finally in Pitt's record, if you look uh, if you look in Pitt's media guide. But uh, mm-hmm. but just a really, you know, really good game. And uh, and uh uh, a, a really exciting one, one that I wish I had been there at. You know, uh-huh. I read the newspaper accounts and it's like, boy, I wish I could have been right down there on the 35 yard line, maybe, maybe close enough to hear uh, Pop Warner cussing out the referee. Sure, that would that 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 would be fun. I asked you about you know a couple of the good teams, and I think this next question leads into some more of those good teams, and we're going to talk about the West Coast. One of the biggest controversies amongst these teams was which teams would play in the 1919 Rose Bowl. Tell us about that entire situation, because there were several teams out on the West Coast who thought they had the right to play in that game, the 1919 Rose Bowl, and um, they ended up having to go through a playoff to get there. Yeah, it was really interesting. So uh, on paper, if you were if you were just reading the scores, you would have said the Mare Island Marines were the best team on the West Coast. Just if you if you looked at some of their scores, they were winning these games, you know, 89 to nothing, uh, just kind of dominating these teams. But then when you look a little bit closer, you saw that they were, you know, they were playing kind of these these teams that just weren't very good you know the goat island navy yard i don't even know what goat island is you know i'm, I'm sure if i looked on a map of uh map of california i might be able to to find it but you know this uh, clearly a small base you know and it's partly because of the pandemic they were playing whoever they could play at the time uh but uh yeah they were playing some they were playing some teams, playing some games that uh, that maybe weren't the best caliber. So you had a bunch of other, uh, you had a bunch of other teams out on the West Coast that thought that they deserved a chance to uh, to uh, be part of the conversation. That thought that they deserved a Rose Bowl berth. So uh, there was, uh, I think it was the Los Angeles Times. They 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 said that the the picture was about as clear as restaurant coffee. So it was uh, the uh, a bunch of different teams vying for. 
uh, vying for berths. So the Mare Island Marines were, again, uh, they were mostly Washington State guys. Uh, Lone Star Dietz, who had coached Washington State, who had played for Pop Warner uh, at Carlisle, was was their coach. Um, they had they had run through that season. Yeah, I, I, it was some absurd score. Uh, what did they have? They had they racked up 410 uh, points in eight regular season games. Their opponents scored seven. Yeah, so they it were, was crazy they were a, number. Yeah, they were just a just a darn good football team on paper. But again, uh, there were several other other undefeated teams. They all wanted a chance. So the Tournament of Roses committee said, "Okay, there will be a playoff." So that's kind of interesting because in Chicago, Great Lakes, which uh, uh, had that really good season, but they did have the two ties. Uh, there was another team, the Chicago Naval Reserves, that beat Pete Stinchcomb and the Cleveland Naval Reserves. Uh, they were undefeated, and they wanted a chance to play for the title and 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 the chance to play in the Rose Bowl. And initially, the captain that oversaw both bases said yes, and then uh, listened to the arguments from Great Lakes' coach about, you know, we need the training time, we need to do this, we need to do that, we play better competition than them, and then ultimately sided with Great Lakes. So, but uh, Mirror Island wasn't so lucky. They kind of had to run the gauntlet there. So, um, yeah, you had the San Diego Naval Training Station, uh, you had Rockwell Field, you had Mare Island, uh, you had Mather Field that had a really good uh, really good quarterback from Pitt, you know, who Pop Warner had coached. Uh, so, they kind of ran the gauntlet and uh Mare Island Marines did end up being the best team on the West coast, but uh, they were beat up. You know, they played their last game on Christmas day, just you know, seven days before the Rose bowl. And it was a hard fought game too. They won. Uh, I think that was the one they beat the San Diego Navy. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, I think it was 12 to seven was the final score. So it was, you know, they, they couldn't rest their, their starters in that game. They had a, they had a dog fight on their hands. So meanwhile, great lakes has had a month off. They had a leisurely train trip. You know, they got to visit uh, universal studios and the orange groves and, you know, a submarine base. They had kind of this, uh, this leisurely trip, you know, and they practiced hard too, but they, you know, they, they definitely weren't, uh, uh, Great Lakes wasn't beat up. They weren't, uh, physically or emotionally beat up the way that, uh, that Mare Island was. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, Mare Island ran the gauntlet and then they, that ultimately they ran into a buzzsaw once they played Great Lakes, uh, mm-hmm. which, uh, they did, uh, gr- as, as good as Mare Island was, they, uh, uh, Great Lakes kind of had their number in the Rose Bowl. Uh, Great Lakes won it uh, 17 to nothing behind uh, George Hallis, Patty Driscoll, uh, Jimmy Councilman uh, coming off the bench. Uh, a third, uh, all three were Pro Football Hall of Famers. Jimmy Councilman was a great player, but Great Lakes was Great Lakes was so stacked that this guy who would eventually be in the Hall of Fame uh, didn't even start there. He had to come off come off the bench. So. Uh, a deep team, a good team, uh, and uh, and put together some really good football. Mm-hmm. Chris, there's two other names that we have to talk about. The first, you already mentioned him, but we didn't get into his kind of game, and that's Omar Bradley. Right. Tell us right. about Omar Bradley and his contribution to war football. Okay. So Omar Bradley, you know, his name rings down in history as the, 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 you know, the chief ground commander during D-Day and during much of the uh, uh, liberation of Europe during World War II, uh, the last of America's five-star generals. But uh, back in the 1910s, he was mostly known for being an athlete. He was he was actually a very, very good baseball player. I think he uh, he led the the West Point team in batting average when he was there. Um, but he uh, also played football at West Point. He uh, he was a uh, 
he was on the uh, army team that won the national championship. Uh, I believe that was the 1914 season. He was class in 1915. Mm-hmm. I believe it was the 1914 season, but he was a backup. He only played in a couple games. You know, he definitely, he definitely earned his, if they, if there was such a thing as a championship ring back then, he definitely earned his ring, but uh, he definitely wasn't one of the stars, but uh, uh, Bradley wanted to get into the war. You know, he was a uh, career army officer, wanted to get over there, get over into Europe uh, and his orders to ship over overseas uh, came through and then were immediately canceled when the armistice was declared. He was supposed to leave right around the time that the armistice was declared. So, so he was stuck at Camp Dodge in Des Moines, Iowa, but the good thing is uh, Camp Dodge had a football team, so he signed up for and and, and played for the football team. Uh, and he had missed the first couple of games because he had been so deeply involved in the preparations and the training for getting ready to ship overseas. But uh, now that he had all this time on his hands, he played for the, uh, for the last few games for Camp Dodge. He played tackle. Uh, and what was most noteworthy about... Uh, Omar Bradley during uh, during his war football experience, you know, he didn't go on to play in the NFL or anything like that. But uh, during one of the games for Camp Dodge, uh, Camp Dodge was playing University of Iowa, which uh, had one of the best tackles in the college game at the time. Uh, he was just a freshman at the time, but a guy named Duke Slater, who uh, oh, ended sure, up being a college. Duke. Yeah. Yeah, Duke uh, Duke ended up being a college football Hall of Famer. He just recently was named to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, yep. uh, probably probably 30 or 40 years after he should have been. But uh, he was one of only a few black players in major college football at the time. Uh, so before the game, uh, the referee, who was uh, Walter Eckersall, one of the great names in football, too, and, uh, and a, a big booster of war football, kind of approached Omar Bradley on the side. And, uh, and I wanted to have a little conversation with him because Bradley was from the South and he Eckersall asked, Hey, is it okay that you're, that you're going to be playing against a black player? And, uh, kind of the implication was, although Eckersall was, uh, pretty, uh, pretty progressive, extremely progressive, uh, on race relations in his day, but kind of the implication was, uh, if you don't want, if you don't want to play against a black player, just tell me, I'll tell Iowa to bench him. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of this. But, uh, but Omar Braley to his credit said, Nope, I just want to play football. And he promised that, uh, at least on the football field, he would be colorblind and, and play fair with Duke Slater. And uh, and that's how the game shook out. You know, a couple of a uh, couple of Bradley's teammates from Camp Dodge uh, weren't so kind. They kind of you know kicked Slater when he was down and took a couple of cheap shots. You know, knocked him to the ground. Uh, and then it was always Omar Bradley over there helping him up, giving him a hand, helping him to his feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, kind of a, an interesting story, an interesting tidbit because uh, ultimately, you know, this Southerner who grew up in a, in a very segregated uh, society grew up under Jim Crow. Uh, or on the, on the, on the oppressive side of Jim Crow, I guess, uh, but agreed to play square with his black opponent back in 1918. He was the guy who wound up desegregating the army 30 years ago, 30 years later Mm -hmm. as uh, army chief of staff under, uh, under president Harry Truman. So I like to think that maybe his war football experience kind of foreshadowed, uh, the military and the country and, and, and it's long and sometimes frustratingly slow, uh, but a bend towards justice and, uh, and a bend towards equality of opportunity. So, uh, so kind of an interesting tidbit from 1918 that carried over through the years. Mm-hmm. And by the way, anybody wants to learn more about Duke Slater, check out uh, Sports Forgotten Heroes episode number 39. Spent a lot of time talking about Duke Slater. The most accomplished of the generals to play, at least I think, later became a president, Dwight Eisenhower. Tell us about his ability on the field and his contribution 
to wartime football. Right. So at the time of World War I, uh, if, if you knew the name of Dwight Eisenhower, you probably knew him as a football man. Because he had played on, uh, he had played on Army's team. He was a starter on Army's varsity back in 1912, starting halfback. Uh, he was just a sophomore back then, but he was a really, really good player. Um, he was a starter. He really held his own in a tough loss to uh, to Carlisle and and Jim Thorpe. He tackled Jim Thorpe. Uh, Jim Thorpe got the better of him a couple of times. Uh, years later, Jim Thorpe uh, was asked during an interview what he re- remembered about Eisenhower, who at that time was uh, was either either running for president or already was president. And, and Thorpe kind of smiled and nodded his head and said, hmm, good linebacker. You know, now linebacker wasn't a position back then, but the, the halfback position he played, depending on how the, the formation went, would be what we would recognize as a linebacker today. So uh, so Eisenhower was a really good player as a sophomore, but he tore up his knee late in the season and he had to quit playing football. He was just done, but uh, he took up coaching instead. So he uh, helped coach the junior varsity at Army uh, at a couple of his uh, initial stateside assignments after he graduated from uh, from the military academy he did a little bit of coaching he coached uh, he coached a, a military school down in Texas he uh, but where he really got involved in war football uh, he coached the 12th division all-stars uh, during the Mexican border crisis which was kind of a precursor to war football this was the the winter of 1916-1917 right before the US got involved in World War one there was uh, a large deployment of National Guard troops down to the the Texas-Mexico border, and uh, one of the things that uh, that the high official decide, officials decided to do to keep the troops busy was to sponsor football games. You know, uh, let's keep them away from the saloons and the red light districts by <laughs> by throwing this big football tournament. So uh, Ike coached the uh, the 12th Division All Stars during this tournament. Uh, it's possible, but I haven't found definitive evidence that. Uh, he also he may have coached at Camp Colt in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. where he commanded the Tank Corps. Uh, Camp Colt put a football team together, but then they wound up canceling their games, both because of the influenza pandemic and a couple other reasons. So we don't have a record of Camp Colt's actual playing, so we don't know who their coach was. So you know, Ike might have been in their coach. He might have been one of their coaches. We don't have definitive evidence there. But uh, but after the war, you know, and, and Ike, like Bradley, was frustrated that he never got over to Europe to be uh, to be part of the fighting. It's how you, mm-hmm. you really wanted to make your bones as a young officer. But uh, he kept coaching at Army bases for a few years after the war. He coached at, uh, at Camp Meade in Maryland. He coached at Fort Benning in Georgia. And then eventually, you know, the, during the, the mid to late 1920s, he started the long and at the time slow because the military was downscaling after uh, World War One, but uh, started the long climb up the military ladder that ultimately ended up with him uh, being supreme commander during uh, World War Two, and then ultimately ended up with him getting to the White House. Mm-hmm. But uh, I never forgot his uh, football experience, never forgot what being a football guy was all about. And he always integrated football into his leadership. Style. Well, and that's, yeah. and that's where I was going to go. He liked to use football terminology in battle. I mean, he eventually made his way into battle and on the front lines, he'd tell his troops, pull an end run, hit the line, break through. He liked the strategy of the game and he was able to relate it to the actual battlefield. You hear a lot about that, how football and battles relate. Can you expand on that thought and tell us how the two actually work in conjunction with each other? 
Right. It's really kind of interesting when you go back to some of the old writings. Uh, Walter Camp, who we already talked about, uh, it's it's funny how he, you know, he would always clearly use the football terminology, you know, hit the line hard, pull an end run, etc. But what he would relate football to back in the day was a modern corporation because Walter Camp, uh, you know, he made he made quite a bit of money from uh, from football. But his big. Uh, profession was uh, uh, at a clock company where he started out as a salesman and he ended up being the president. But uh, he saw, you know, football players as cogs in a machine and, you know, the, the, the efficiently run corporation relating that to a football and how, uh, you know, how uh, a, a quarterback is a game manager, uh, things like that. Well, once uh, <laughs> once we got involved in World War One, he kind of changed his lingo. So, you know, the forward passing became artillery work and, you know, you had all all this, uh, all this uh, language that more related to the military aspect of uh, football. And I think that's kind of an aspect that's stuck over the years. You certainly saw it with Eisenhower, a lot of the language that he would use. And uh, he would also say that it was no coincidence that a lot of his top generals, including Omar Bradley, but also George Patton, uh, uh, some, some really key generals, some, uh, some big figures. I think, uh, I think George Marshall, uh, who was back stateside as, uh, as army chief of staff during world war II, but I think he had been involved in football. Uh, some of the, some of the really important lieutenants that, uh, that helped Ike win the war had been football players. And he said that that was no coincidence. That was really, uh, you know, the two kind of went hand in hand. Mm-hmm. You knew football helped, uh, football helped teach you leadership. It helped teach you confidence, helped teach you self-reliance. It taught you how to look out for the guy on your left and the guy on your right and the guy behind you. Uh, a lot of these things that applied to the battleground and fighting in the trenches and, uh, and, um, being a part of an efficient military unit, you know, learning chain of command, how to take orders, when to take pers- personal initiative, uh, a lot of traits. And, and Walter Camp really pushed that, too. That was that was kind of his argument for why we had to roll football out among all the military camps during World War One. This is going to this is going to develop your soldiers just as much as you know, going on long marches and maybe taking rifle practice, you know, obviously you need the rifle practice if you're going to go into battle, but, uh, but the football is gonna, is gonna harden some of those, uh, some of those skills that, uh, it might be hard to put your finger on, but some of those skills that really do make a good soldier. Mm-hmm. Chris, your book, war football, world war one, and the birth of the NFL is filled with so much. And your knowledge of that, period of time is so deep and you speak so well about it we could spend so much more time talking about it but then i'd be giving away the whole book and i encourage (laughs) everybody even though the book was written several years ago it is such a great read the way you put it together we're not talking about 20 30 and 40 page chapters or little snippets and it makes it so much easier to read and it's a fun to read book and again i encourage everyone listening to go out and get a copy of chris's book war football world war one and the birth of the nfl and with that i want to end here how crucial was military or war football to the formation of professional football as we know it today instead of little small professional leagues scattered throughout the country. 
I think that it was critical, you know, really uh, through this military football phenomenon that you saw during World War One. That was just an explosion of high-level amateur football. And it's no coincidence that right after the war, you had an explosion of professional football going from kind of the semi-professional, you know, rinky-dink uh, small cities to high-level all-stars, guys who had been all-Americans and all-conference and and all-whatever players, and, and significantly all-service players, too, because, again, Walter Camp had the all-service team during World War One, But, uh, yeah, these all-star teams – of the former college players on military teams really led directly to the birth of the NFL. You know, the NFL was coming sooner or later, but uh, I, I believe, and and the evidence bears it out, there were at least 240 war football veterans who played and coached in the early NFL, uh, including seven Hall of Famers. And the true number is likely much higher. You know, you had at least 150 other NFL players who were World War I veterans. We just don't have enough documentation to tell of their war football status, whether they played on some of these teams or not. Uh, you know, that, unfortunately, one of the problems with the press at the time was, you know, they would they would call a player Smith, you know, and they wouldn't say his first name. It's like, <laughs> right. well, which Smith? But right. uh but uh, so it's at least 240 and it's likely much higher uh, of of the war football veterans who were involved in the early years of the NFL and helped it to grow and thrive. So, you know, the NFL was coming sooner or later. But I truly believe and the evidence bears this out that uh, that World War One uh, led to the birth of the NFL five or 10 or maybe even 20 years before it would have otherwise been. Uh, it's a fascinating story. I'm glad that I discovered it and I'm really glad that I was able to tell it. Yeah, you have a great passion. Your enthusiasm for the topic is quite evident. And I want to thank you again for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes, for taking time out of your evening to spend with me. And uh, wow, what a great topic. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation this evening. Thanks, Warren. I enjoyed it a lot, too. <laughs> As you said, I could talk about this all day. But uh, yeah, for those of you who are interested, uh, you can read plenty more about it in War Football. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Some of the other names I didn't touch upon in today's show were Potsy Clark. We didn't dive deep into Jimmy Conzelman or Frank Pollard or Emmett Keefe. They all have terrific stories. And some of the topics I left out were the AEF tournament, the Third Army Championship, the Mexican Border Tournament, and so much more. If I covered it all, there'd be nothing left for you to read in Chris's book, and we could have spoken for at least another hour or two. I encourage you to pick up a copy of Chris's book, War Football, World War One. And the birth of the NFL. You won't be disappointed. And it is such an easy read. You'll enjoy it. Thanks again to Chris for taking time out of his evening for another appearance on Sports Forgotten Heroes. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. And I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Sports Forgotten Heroes.